Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey, milkshakers. Welcome to the show. It's me, your host, Rain Wilson. And with me today is his co-host, Cyrus. My, wait, wait. Who, who's there? Who is that? Cyrus. Cy- Cyrus Aslan? Re- Reza Aslan's son? Why are you? Where's your dad? Well, you know what? No, you know what? Do what? Cyrus, just stay, stay there. Stay put. Stay by the microphone. Since I have you, today's episode um, is all about having adventures in philosophy with kids. You're a kid. Have you ever thought about philosophy? Um, I don't know. I think that's a good answer. What, um, what, tell me about. What's going on? What? What? Are, are you doing my podcasting? duties wait wait i've got a question for cyrus this is this is a podcast for big ideas there's no room for kids here well reza that was uh that was strangely appropriate how did that ever happen you know cyrus he gets into things he gets into podcasts apparently you can't give a kid a microphone because as, as everyone knows, kids say the darndest things. And they often say the darndest philosophical things. <gasps> I'm very Transition. excited. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> uh, for today's episode, a terrific book, folks. Scott Hershevitz wrote a book called Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. Um, and how much we can learn about philosophy by having conversations around philosophy with children. Uh, There's much more to it than that, but uh, really exciting uh, book. Uh, Do your kids uh, sometimes present you with philosophical quandaries, Reza? Yes, all the time. Like, should I stop having them? (laughs) (laughs) Folks, we're going to have a scintillating conversation, but let me tell you a little bit more about Scott Hershevitz. He's a professor of law and philosophy at the University of Michigan. He directs their law and ethics program, and he's editor of Journal of Legal Theory. He writes uh, about philosophy. He even wrote about the philosophy of Taylor Swift for the New York Times. Prior to joining the faculty at Michigan, he served as a law clerk to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and was an attorney advisor on the appellate staff of the Civil Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. He's got undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science, philosophy, He's got a doctorate in legal philosophy from Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, He's got a book about jurisprudence called Law is a Moral Practice. And he is fascinated by the philosophical questions related to law. And he is now an author of a book for adults and kids and adults with kids, Nasty, Brutish, and Short Adventures. 
in philosophy with my kids. Let's welcome to the show, Scott Hershevitz. Thank you so much for having me. It's super excited to be here. The book, again, is Nasty, Brutish, and Short Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. It's such a delightful book. You know, it's funny. I was um, talking to my kids during uh, dinner last night, and they were like, well, wh- what is uh, a philosopher? And I was like, well, you know, uh, philosophy is the the love of wisdom, the love of knowledge, and, and a philosopher is somebody who, you know, like – thinks big thoughts and and asks uh, big unanswerable questions and they're like that's not a job that's not <laughs> that's not a real job <laughs> you know, yeah. like, no 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 it's an actual paid job that people have they, they wouldn't believe me they still don't they still don't believe me I, you know, I'm not sure that I believe it either, and I have the job. So, you know, when I'm out in the world and people ask me what I do, I've never once told a stranger that I'm a philosopher because it, it doesn't sound like a thing. It's not real. Right. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm also a lawyer, so I, I, I usually lead with usually lead with that. Um, but my, my father also had just like the same concern when I went home and said, like, I think I want to major in philosophy. His, his what's what's philosophy? And I had, I, I was in a philosophy class. I decided this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I couldn't explain it either. Uh, so it's, it's a hard thing to explain, but my kid actually helped me understand. Uh, when I was, when he was in second grade, the teacher on the first day of school said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said he wanted to be a philosopher of math, or as he put it, a math philosopher. And so I said to him, what's a philosopher? And just instantly he said, philosophy is the art of thinking. So, so that's what, that's what I'm going with. Philosophy is the art of thinking. Is that, is that how you would describe like to a kid? Like if a kid asked you, what do you do? So when I, when my kids were little and I was trying to explain to them my job, I would tell them that philosophers are people who think of really good questions and then try to think of answers. And, uh, you know, and that's not fully adequate because, you know, they would be like, oh, like, um, uh, you know, here's a question like, where did I leave? Where did I leave my favorite stuffed animal? And I'd be like, well, that's a good question, <laughs> but that's not, that's not exactly what we're after. Yeah. It's a kind of, you know, it's like you want to distinguish like the things that we can investigate empirically from the things that we can only investigate by thinking them through. That's, that's the target of philosophy. So I have a question. I, uh, took some philosophy courses in college, which I greatly enjoyed, but it seemed to me uh, very clear that there were two kinds of philosophers. There were, namely, the academic philosopher that stayed in school and stayed purely in the academic realm, kind of began with words and ended with words, zero kind of social or psychological relevance to the conversations, it seemed to me. Um, But then there's this whole other school of, um, and an ancient school of kind of, social philosophers, you know, who talk about these big ideas in the public square. I'm thinking about uh, Alain de Botton, of course, Socrates, the first one, Zizek, whatever that guy's, Slavos, Zizek, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Cornell West, Noam Chomsky, etc. cetera. Um, now, what kind of philosopher are you? So I think of myself as somebody who's straddling the border between these two worlds. And that may be because I'm a philosopher of law. I teach primarily in a law school. I talk to my students about philosophical questions about law 
Are we obligated to obey the law? What is civil disobedience? How is it different from other forms of lawbreaking? And so, uh, you know, the kinds of questions I have in my academic work are really questions that are um, engaged in the world um, and practically relevant uh, to decisions that individuals and institutions have to make. But I actually think like there's like a really exciting transformation happening in academic philosophy generally. I think a lot of philosophers are um, watching the the world seem to burn around them, and they're uh, they're asking, you know, what is it? What what do the tool? What do the tools we have? offer the world. And so like, for instance, you mentioned words and philosophy of language. There is a kind of growing movie called growing movement called the social and political philosophy of language that um, is asking like questions like what are slurs and why are slurs bad or what's propaganda and how does it work? Just how does like the, um, uh, you know, Jason Stanley at Yale has done really terrific uh, work trying to understand um, like the ways in which words are used to to manipulate us. See, this is important because I don't have to tell you this, but you know, philosophers they get a bad rap. Uh, I think you know a lot of, especially you get this from scientists a lot, right? Uh, you know, like what is the point? Uh, we were we were doing some research on the way that you know some sort of more of these sort of popular pop scientists. Uh, have thought about philosophy, and uh, there's this you know quote by Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, from what I understand, never shuts the fuck up. Right? I mean, this guy has an opinion, <laughs> has an opinion every, on yeah. every fucking thing. Right? I mean, but like, isn't that isn't that? But Reza, isn't that like Jordan Peterson too? Oh like, Jesus Christ! Like, there's actually some things I think Jordan Peterson says that are pretty wise, but then you'll you'll ask his opinion about. I don't know, North Korea, and he'll just go on yeah. for like days. Yes. Uh, or, you know, or <laughs> women's yeah. vaginas, and he'll lecture you on the history of, he'll mansplain women's vaginas to you. <laughs> you know, he's got this whole thing where he's like, uh, you know, why are you concerning yourself with the meaning of meaning? If you are distracted by your questions so that you can't move forward, you are not being a productive contributor to our understanding of the natural world. And so the scientist knows when the question, what is the sound of one hand clapping, is a pointless delay in our progress. Now, let's put aside the utterly facile <laughs> conception of philosophy and what a philosopher does from a so-called scientist. Um you know, how do you how do well, you hold on a second? Oh, okay. Because yes. I also want to say, and sorry, I keep interrupting, Reza. What is the sound of one hand clapping is a Zen koan. Yeah, it's not which even is not philosophy. a philosophical like, question. Shut, exactly. It is there. It is there <laughs> to help you perceive the world in a slightly different way. And uh, uh, anyway, continue. The, the, sorry, the, Reza. Go. The, the title of this episode of the podcast is Why Won't Neil deGrasse Tyson Shut the Fuck Up? But <laughs> uh you know what? Do you, like, I mean, what do you say to that kind of of criticism about philosophy? So, you know, most of the sciences were actually, or all of the sciences were, in a way, born out of philosophy. Um, and philosophy sort of hands questions over when it turns out that other disciplines have developed tools for addressing them better than we can just by thinking them through. And it's actually a really wonderful thing when we develop tools for addressing different kinds of questions. So I give an example in the book. I offer um, an argument that my uh, my older son, Rex, made when he was seven years old. He just said to me, just to go into Neil deGrasse Tyson's space, we were walking home from school one day, and he said to me, 
you know, the universe is infinite. And I was like, I I don't know, buddy. I think science disagree about that. Some think it's infinite. Some people think it's really big, but it's finite. And he's like, no, it has to be infinite. Why? So he made me an argument. The argument's clever. He says, like, suppose you take a spaceship all the way to the end of the universe. And then you're just, you're right there and you punch your hand. He looks at me, he says, it has to go somewhere, right? I said, I don't know. What if it just stops? He says, well, if it stops and something's stopping it. So you weren't at the end yet. And, you know, I knew, I knew like That's enough nice. physics to know, like, this is not a great argument because it turns out you can have finite spaces without edges. So like, think about the surface of a balloon. Like if you're an ant walking on the surface of a balloon, you can walk forever and you're never going to hit an edge because the space folds back on itself. So it's finite, but it doesn't have edges. Some people think the universe might work. Some scientists think the universe might work like that. But I was describing this, um, I was describing this argument that my kid Rex had made to a philosopher of physics. And he's like, oh yeah, that, that people have making that argument for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Like the first recorded version of it is this guy named Architas, right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, people were trying just with the tools that they had, which was the power of their own mind to understand what the universe is like. Well, now we have other tools, right? Neil deGrasse Tyson, right, can go to his observatory and he can use his powerful telescopes and they can look into the past and they can do all kinds of, um, you know, experiments to try and understand the way space is structured. This is going to be a better way of getting at the question than just trying to reason it through with your own mind. Mm-hmm. But there are questions that we've got, really important questions, where we don't have better tools yet and we may never. So if you want to know what justice is or what beauty is or just how you should be in the world, like what's the best way to live, um, you know, we some of this may be, you know, we, we can try things out and see how they go. But a lot of these questions say, what's justice or what's truth? These are questions that we have to, to answer by thinking them through. That's brilliant. That reminds me, that conversation with your son reminds me of the end of the, of the Truman Show, which is really one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And it really holds up. And the, the ending is one of the best endings ever. But when he, he sails the boat and oh, then bumps it. into the side of his universe, mm-hmm. and then right. there's a little stairway with a door, and then there's a whole other reality beyond the reality that he thought was reality. Um, it's, uh, it's both... It echoes with science and philosophy and spirituality, that that ending. You know, sometimes fun gets pushed to the very bottom of our priority list. We're always waiting for that free time to do something fun and exciting that uplifts us. How often do you let yourself have some hard-earned fun? You deserve more fun. You deserve maximum fun. Okay, some joy to your daily routine Try the new game, Best Fiends. It's a puzzle adventure game you won't be able to put down. I am currently on level 19. I really can't get enough of this. It's hard to describe. You get these little characters, these little guys. They're your friends. I just got this new one named Tantrum the Dung Beetle. And um, you line up various leaves and you're shooting powers at the evil slugs and you're collecting treasure along the way. It's super fun to just pick up and play at any time. You can get a level done just like that. Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every single time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect, 
so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. Power up your favorite fiends to get new levels from even more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. And with offline play, you'll never be stranded for fun, even if you lose your internet connection. There's brand new events and challenges that pop up all year round. You've always got a chance to earn exclusive in-game items, characters, and rewards. Ladies and gentlemen, you've earned some fun time. It's been a rough couple years. Go to the App Store or Google Play to download Best Fiends for free. Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Milkshakers Public Goods is the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from personal care and household products to coffee, toilet paper, shampoo, pet food, and more. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with a beautiful, streamlined aesthetic. They have these refillable bottles. Uh, they're very aesthetically pleasing, and I keep it stocked up right outside of my office, as a matter of fact. So knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. They ethically source and obsessively develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They are committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. So join hundreds of thousands of others who have switched over to their new everything store, Public Goods. And we have worked out an awesome deal. Receive $15 off of your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right, they are so confident that you're absolutely gonna love their products and that you're gonna come back again and again that they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You got nothing to lose, here's what you do. Go to publicgoods.com slash milkshake or use the code MILKSHAKE at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash MILKSHAKE to receive $15 off your first order at Public Goods. Thank you so much. My son is in high school uh, here in California, and um, one of the things we found really odd about his education is... uh, they don't even offer creative writing. There's not even an option to take a creative writing class. And in none of his English classes to date has he done any creative writing. All English has turned into just analysis of books and stories and outlines for essays, um, which is, I guess it's good for testing and maybe it's good for getting you into, you know, the UC schools or something like that. But this whole aspect of language of like inventing stories, like they just simply don't teach anymore. It's, it's not there. And this has kind of happened nationwide um, with philosophy in the schools. You know, it, it, uh, you know, it used to be part of high school curriculums. I took great books in high school and I'm so grateful because I was reading Kant and Nietzsche and and Rousseau and 
Um, and side by side with literature as well. We've talked about this before on the show, but I think we're we're kind of lacking. I know in France, they have a very strong system for teaching philosophy to teenagers. Um, and perhaps there is contained in philosophy some of the most vital skills for the modern age, critical thinking, mm -hmm. tolerance for opposing viewpoints, right? When you're in a philosophical debate, you're not just outraged immediately if someone has a different point of view on reality than you have. But um, what do you think about uh, philosophy and, and its, uh, its woeful lack of any kind of presence in the American educational system? You went to a better high school than I did. I didn't encounter philosophy until I was in college, and it was only by accident that I encountered it. I wanted to take a psychology class, and it was full, and, well, here we are together. Oh, I, so I that, thought maybe you just well. misspelled it. Yeah, no, I bubbled in <laughs> the, the form wrong back when we bubbled in, bubbled in forms. However, I ended up in that class. You know, I do wonder what would have happened if I'd been in the other one. But, you know, I do think the rest of the world is ahead of us, um, or lots of the rest of the world is ahead of us on including philosophy as a part of basic education. And I actually think it should be part of education well before high school. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, I have visited my kids class and sometimes I'll take picture books and, uh, you know, actually the, the Prindle Institute for Ethics has this website called Teaching Children Philosophy. If you just Google Teaching Children Philosophy, it, it has these modules for you know, lots of picture books, the most common ones, books people own anyway. So like Nuffle Bunny, or um, uh, or um, Frederick. It's just like an endless series of like the classic picture books. And it provides a little primer for parents. Here's some philosophical questions that, that come up in this story. And here are like discussion questions you might ask your kids as you read. And kids really love engaging these questions. And they really love thinking deeply. They just pour themselves into the conversation. And I think that you, you can really help them develop two skills. One is like, to hold on to this desire to think deeply about things. And then the second is if you do it in a group, if you do it in a classroom and you set some norms around the engagement of we're going to take turns listening to each other and we're going to disagree, but we're going to disagree respectfully and we're going to try to understand what the other person is saying, then I think you could cultivate sort of better habits of uh, discourse and exchange and argument than we have in our culture generally. Yeah, I think this would come as a shock to a lot of Americans that most other countries in the world, most of Europe, most of Latin America, uh, actually require some form of philosophy education at the high school level. Uh, obviously, we do not in the U.S. And I think, more importantly, studies routinely show that kids who study philosophy have higher test scores on, on verbal uh, their verbal skills on computational intelligence than those who do not, which you know goes a long way to explaining why uh, you know our high school kids are just so much dumber than uh, other high school kids. But you you say that you have this line in the book uh, that um, that all kids, all kids without exception, are philosophers, yeah. right? Um, what what do you mean by that? What what makes kids such great philosophers? So kids are really phenomenal philosophers because for two reasons, I think. One is they've just been dropped into the world and there's lots that's confusing about it and they're constantly puzzled and they're trying to put it together and they don't yet know 
what the standard explanations of things are, and they don't yet know what questions adults don't think are worth asking. They haven't listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson's endless <laughs> explanations of things or his dismissals of things that he doesn't understand. Uh, and so they're, they're just quizzical um, and creative, and they see possibilities that adults don't, and they challenge things that adults take for granted. So I think that's the first reason. The second reason is... Uh, they're not afraid of seeming silly, right? Silly is the mm-hmm. business that they're in and they're not worried about being wrong. They're wrong all the time. And so they just try ideas out. And, um, and you know, like, so I, I think like, you know, the story about Rex and his argument about the universe, I think is revealing. At seven, he was just putting it out there. I figured out that the universe goes on forever. Let me tell you why. If he'd thought of that argument when he was 17, I'm not sure that he would have been so quick to share it um, and to like put it out as a topic of conversation. So I think those are the like the two advantages kids have over a lot of adults is they um, they're they're puzzled and trying to make sense of things and they're they're fearless because they're not really worried about what other people think. Yeah, John Banville has this uh, this great line about childhood. He says childhood is quote a state of constantly recurring astonishment. And I mean, what better, you know, playground for philosophical thinking? I love, I love hearing that because it makes me realize, Reza, like, I'm in a, I'm in a constant state of like anxiety, despair, and eye roll, <laughs> right? yes. and occasional outrage. But when am I? When's the last time I've been astonished, astonished. at something? Yeah, there was a lunar yeah. eclipse a couple weeks ago, and I was pretty astonished at the the color of the moon. It was just something that I had never seen before, but it's, it's pretty darn rare that I'm astonished. Yeah. You know, I was having lunch with another philosopher last week and he was telling me that he started taking his five-year-old daughter out to restaurants and she'd been to restaurants before the pandemic, but she just forgotten what it was like. And she was having this experience of astonishment, just that you could be someplace else People would bring you food. You could ask for what you wanted and yeah. you come to your table. And that's just like the perpetual state of of these people is like everything is new and they're full of, you know, one of my favorite stories, just to give you an illustration, one of my favorite stories in the book comes from this philosopher, Gareth Matthews, who mm. uh, dedicated his career to kids and, you know, gathered stories from parents, went to schools, talked to kids. And he um, was talking to a mother of a little boy named Ian whose family had had another family over for dinner. And there were three kids in that family and just Ian and his family. And so the three kids had picked what to watch on the TV and Ian missed his favorite TV show. And when the other family left, he said to his mother, why is it better for three people to be selfish rather than one? I I just love that question. It's, you know, it's like it's challenging something grownups would take for granted that more people want, we're in a group and more people want to do that. But, you know, it's a kind of challenge to the economist way of thinking of like, let's maximize the satisfaction of people's preferences. It's a kind of challenge to democracy lurking there, too. It's just a question that no grown up would think to ask because we've so long taken it for granted that, well, more people want to do that. So let's do it. That's fantastic. Well, you're talking about wonder and naivete, um, starting with kind of a in Zen Buddhism that would call it a beginner's mind. So how children grow up? I got a teenager. Okay, Scott, Dr. Scott, <laughs> Lawyer Scott. I don't know what yeah, your title Dr. is. Yeah, Dr. Lawyer Scott. Uh, JD. Um, 
I have a teenager and I can see the mind closing. And it's very interesting because we live in such a world right now. Um, this I don't want I don't want Reza to get triggered here, but we live in a in a cancel <laughs> culture world where there is a um there is often a, a kind of a knee-jerk crowd res- response to when someone is makes a mistake or is rude or you know in some cases are out and out revealing their racist stripes but in some cases not and i've noticed this with my son like if he if someone at school like one kid set up called a girl a bitch at school and he's that's it he's not talking to that kid anymore that's it mm. and i was like oh Interesting. So what about forgiveness? What about the spiritual concept of forgiveness, you know, or have you spoken to him about this? But it's like, no, not interested. He's a jerk. And he said that. Um, So, you know, I'd love for you to, to tackle that one, but, but bigger than that, like how, how do we encourage children as they grow up into teens and as young adults to continue pondering, to continue keeping that fresh, open, awe-filled mind and developing these deep thoughts so that we don't lose it. Okay, the second question is actually easier than the first. I'm not sure I, you know, my kids are just approaching adolescence, so I haven't haven't quite gotten to uh, some of the challenges, challenges of the teenage years. But, um, you know, I do think there is a way, you know, like the Matthews discovered, Gareth Matthews discovered that children would stop spontaneously raising questions in philosophy around age eight or nine, it's just around the time that they're starting to become aware that other people have views of them. And so they're feeling less fearless than they once did. They're worried about getting things wrong or seeming silly. It's also like the time they develop other sorts of social interests. So they're, um, they're directing their attention to different aspects of the world. But he also discovered if you created a space where you encouraged it and you showed that you valued it, Mm. that kids would join up to the conversation still. Right. So um, one thing I found in just in conversations with my old my own kids as they've gotten older is if it's presented as something in in their lives, right? Like you know, t- thinking about your teenager, hey, why won't you talk to that kid anymore? Do you believe in forgiveness? They're pretty closed down and defensive. But if it's presented as a question about somebody else, like hey, Will Smith did ah, this thing, right? Do you think? Mm. Do you, what do you think he needs to do to you know to make it up to Chris Rock? they're much more willing to um, to engage those questions. So that's, that's one strategy is make it about something else or somebody else. That's but I think great. also That's just- really, really actually super helpful. I'd never really thought about that before. And if you talk about Will Smith and Chris Rock in, the ter- in terms of, of forgiveness, and by the way, listeners, Scott, Dr. Professor J.D. Scott Hershevitz, of Michigan and Oxford, wrote a beautiful op-ed um, about Taylor Swift and forgiveness. That is, uh, you could Google that shit. It's it's pretty great. But um, you talk about uh, Will Smith and Chris Rock, and then uh, that's 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 great. Get into the nature of forgiveness itself. Will that ever be forgivable? Should he never speak to him again? Um, does Will Smith owe Chris Rock an, a personal apology first in order? to then have that discussion. And what's the role of what's the role of third parties here, right? So like that's the question that your teenager is wrestling with because he wasn't called a bitch, somebody else was called a bitch and he's trying uh-huh. to figure out like what 
what am I supposed to do? And the same kind of question becomes like, you know, well, I, I don't know, maybe I think Will Smith did apologize to, to Chris Rock. So what's, what's the standing of the rest of us relative to Will Smith? If Chris Rock makes amends, do we still get to be mad? All of these, I think, are really interesting yeah. philosophical questions that are just like pervasive in our interpersonal relationships. And one thing I have fun doing in philosophy, you mentioned the Taylor Swift essay, is instead of writing about this, these issues in the abstract way that lots of academic philosophers often do, can I find the story, whether it's about my kids or Taylor Swift or Will Smith, that makes the issue come alive and people want to debate it? And then, you know, halfway through the conversation, I get to say, oh, let me tell you what, you know, some academic philosophers had to say about this and see if it moves the conversation forward. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Warby Parker also offers their very own daily contact lens, Scout, by Warby Parker. Scout is a comfortable, breathable, and affordably daily contact lens. A 90-day pack is only 55 bucks. Warby Parker styles range from extra narrow to extra wide to fit all face shapes. Sunglasses start at $95 and are available with prescription. Just like eyeglasses, their sunglasses are available through the Home Try-On program. Warby Parker sunglasses feature premium polarized lenses that are scratch-resistant and provide 100% UV protection. You need to try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try on at home for free for five days. No obligation to buy. Ships free. Includes a prepaid return shipping label. I did this. It's so easy to use. I mean, it's a beautiful website. Got all the glasses there. Click, 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 click. All of a sudden, a couple days later, these beautiful eyeglasses are in a case at your home. Try them on. Oh, I like this one. I don't like this one. Ship them back. Easy peasy pudding and pie. So try your five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash milkshake. That's warbyparker.com slash milkshake. Trade Coffee has so many different roasts and roasters and locations. There's so many different flavors to the beans it makes drinking coffee such a fun experience to try all of these different roasters and brands. And it's all as simple as taking a quiz. Trade Coffee sends you freshly roasted beans from 60 of the country's best craft roasters. Small businesses who pay farmers fair prices to sustainably source the greatest beans from around the world. Whether your friends call you a coffee snob or you just know it when coffee tastes really perfect. Trade's real coffee experts personally test over 450 roasts so they know exactly what to recommend for you. Because the truth is, what I like and what you like could be totally different. You will like a selection of specific coffees that are different from anyone else's taste. Just answer a couple of questions and you'll get your own personalized variety of coffees delivered fresh to you as often as you like, no gimmicks. Trade delivers a bag of freshly roasted coffee as whole beans or ground for however you brew it at home. And they guarantee you'll love your first order or they'll replace it for free. Trade has delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee 
with more than 750,000 positive reviews. So right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash milkshake. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash milkshake and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash milkshake for $30 off. I have a another question that I want to ask you, but I thought that before we did that, it would be fun if we actually, uh, you know, heard from some kids who have some philosophical questions. We did a little kind of shout out to uh, so this world of social media and asked if there were kids out there who uh, are A, on Instagram, and B, uh, have some kind of question that they want to ask. So... We we have a few of these. Why don't we listen to them and then and then you uh maybe you know put on your philosopher's hat and uh and you know not so much answer the question but tell us a little bit about what the question reveals about yeah let's uh, go the brilliant uh, child of philosophy mind uh all right Libor hi my name is Asa and I'm in first grade and my question is would you rather die by being too cold or being too hot oh wow I rather die would you rather die being too cold or too or too hot, hot. So no, I have an answer can I can I give my answer yeah go ahead yeah I, I know that's not what this is about but I have an answer for this <laughs> yeah you have to, Asa, you've got to investigate the science around this because you 100% do not want to die by overheating. It's uh, the worst. Yeah. Your blood boils and your brain expands. And freezing to death is is absolutely the way to go. If you're going to die. I, I hear that too. Yeah. You just, it, you feel, you actually feel warm. You feel safe and cozy and your body just starts to shut your, I'm getting sleepy. And then you just pass away. It's fantastic. Absolutely. So I agree completely, but I think I, uh, you know, just take us back to the Neil deGrasse Tyson conversation. There's a, there's an empirical component of this question and then a philosophical component of the question. Yeah, exactly. So we do want to know how the science works. Somebody needs to tell us what it's going to be like to die, to die in each way. Let's get Neil deGrasse Tyson on the horn. (laughs) No. Yeah. But but then the question, once you know, which of these is a better death? That's a philosophical question. The larger philosophical question is how do you want to die? Mm. Um, physically, but also kind of metaphorically. Yeah, or also, also should death, should, should you, ex- you know, should death be an experience, right? Should it, I mean, like the end of life, like do you want your brain to expand and explode? Or do you want to just kind of drift off into nothingness? You know, there's, there's some philosophy there. Would you rather have a couple weeks or a couple months knowing you're going to die to be able to say goodbye to people? Or would you rather just accidentally have your head chopped off when someone throws a chainsaw across the room. Which happens in LA all the time, by the way. Yes. I I think I actually think about that differently now that I have kids. Now that I have kids, I'd want to get some things arranged and make sure I'm discharging my Mm -hmm. responsibilities where before I had responsibilities to other people, not knowing it was coming seemed like the way to go. All right, let's do another one. Hi, uh, my name is Jasper and I'm 10 years old and in fourth grade. Um, my question is, how do we know if God is real? And if he's not, who created this universe? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that sounded like the answer to me. Did Very I sound like excited? <laughs> yes. kind of, yeah. 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 Answer contained in the question. So the um, there's two two components to that question. How do you know whether God is real? And then if there is no God, how did the universe get here? And um, uh, I've had really phenomenal conversations with my kids about both of these questions. And I explained in the last chapter in the book, when he was four, my older son, Rex, just kind of reframed my understanding of my relationship to religion. He asked me one night, is God real? I was cooking dinner and I said, what do you think? And he said, I think that for real, God is pretend and for pretend, God is real. I just kind of that is deep froze. I was like, that that sounds perfect. I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he said, well, God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. And sort of reflecting on that moment with him helped me really understand my relationship with religion, because I don't think of myself as believing in the standard sense that I think the stories that I'm being told are true and they reflect a kind of the metaphysics of the world. But nevertheless, I observe lots of religious rituals. I go to synagogue. I participate in holidays. I fast on Yom Kippur. And I've always been sort of puzzled about this disconnect between my lack of belief, but the importance of these religious rituals in my life. And then I realized, actually, like Rex is offering me a way of understanding this, that in the same way that pretending can enrich a child's life and make their their games, their days more meaningful, I think that these religious rituals are also enriching my life in just the same way. They provide a framework for celebrating things and for gathering in community. That's why they're important to me. And I'm happy to pretend, even though I don't share the metaphysical view. So um, this is a little bit, not not, to, not a direct answer to how do we know whether God is is real, but um, it's an argument that maybe religious, like participation in religion doesn't require the view that God is, that God is real. Um I'm skeptical that God is, uh, and in part just to connect it up to the second half of the question, because a lot of people think that God is going to provide explanations. Mm -hmm. Why is the world here? Well, God created it. But actually, the the Guardian, the newspaper in London, just just did the same thing you did for me. They gathered philosophical questions from kids, and there was a girl named Leah who said, if God created the world, who created God? I think Leia's got a really great question. (laughs) And uh, and as I say in Nasty Brutish and Short, if if God exists, it's not so much solving the mystery as to move. It's like moving a mystery elsewhere. Well, then I need to know mm. why God. And of course, religious folks have answers to these questions. Um, but but I don't. But but I find when I think about it, God isn't actually getting me the answers I want, and that's part of what makes me skeptical. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting just going along that. And we're not going to make this an episode about God, but there is a wonderful philosophical question about God that I've heard posed a couple of times, which is that in most beliefs about a higher power, this creative force or presence in the universe is is above his, quote unquote, his, to genderify it, uh, his creation, completely above his creation, right? Beyond time and space, et cetera. So by saying, does God exist? Existence is a quality of creation. You know, this Sharpie that I'm holding in my hand exists. God can't exist in the same way that this Sharpie exists because God is beyond all uh, qualities of his creation. Anyways. Yeah, I mean, so actually, that's actually where the chapter on God in in the book starts, which is to say, um, what do we mean when we say that God exists? And it doesn't seem like it could be exist in the same way your Sharpie does, because that just means like has a location in space and time. Mm. And we're told God stands outside. 
space and time. And I draw some analogies. I mean, I don't think that means God doesn't exist. I think like the number six exists is an example I give. Um, though I once tried to persuade my nephew that it didn't. And we got into a kind of comedy of errors when he came to believe maybe that it didn't. But the number six exists, not because it exists in space and time, right? It's an abstract entity that that exists in a different kind of way. The same is, I think is true of like our rights and responsibilities. They don't have locations in space and time. So I don't think it's out of the question that God exists just because he doesn't have a location in space and time. But the challenge is to say, well, what do we mean when we say that God mm. exists? Mm. Well said. Roll the tape. I came home late from a long day at work and jumped into bed with my daughters who were about to fall asleep. One turns to me and asks, do cockroaches get married, mom? I'm a cancer surgeon, so after a day of successfully fielding questions on life and death, I had no answers for her. Can you help? P.S. Buying time, I inquired as to why she asked this question. Apparently, her father had killed a cockroach during the day, and she wanted to know if it had a family to keep. Oh, wow. Now, see, this is actually a much deeper question than it sounds on the surface, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's a lot of layers to yeah. this one. I love it. And I love that this mom thought to ask the why are you asking question, mm. because what starts off just sounding silly, right, actually turns into something profound. She's worried about like the moral quality of what her father did. And she thinks it depends in part on whether there are creatures in the world that care about that cockroach. Right. And then the way she asks it is to say, was that cockroach married? Because that's the framework she's got is like mm -hmm. nuclear family. These are the people that care about you and love you. Um, but it really is a question of how bad should we feel? How upset should we feel? How bad a thing has happened in the world as a result of this killing the cockroach? And, um, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know whether cockroaches care about, uh, care about each other. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 and again, there's like, there's like a partly an empirical kind of question here about like the psychology and sociology of, of cockroaches, such as it is. Um, but I do love the set of thoughts. And actually now I'm finding myself wondering, like, there's also like part of what's worth having a conversation with her about is should we care about the cockroach, even if cockroaches mm -hmm. don't care about each other? I think that's the direction I'd want to take the conversation in if I, if that was my daughter. You know, there's another layer. I mean, you, you tipped your hat to it, but this is really all about compassion because it's kind of like, well, wait a minute. If someone stepped on mommy, then daddy would be all alone and the family would be broken up. And so this girl is having great compassion for the cockroach and wondering to what degree should I have compassion for a cockroach? Mm -hmm. And then, cause we do that as humans, right? Like it's nothing for us to kill uh, germs. We have antibacterial soap, right? But then it goes to cockroaches and then mice. Is that okay to kill a mouse? But then cats can't kill a cat. Certainly can't kill a dog or a horse. I mean, God forbid. So like there's this hierarchy of like, where's the line of what's okay to kill mm -hmm. and not feel bad about or not? And what role does our caring or not caring play in setting that line? Right? So you said like, we can't kill a dog or a cat. Is that because of intrinsic qualities of dogs and cats or is that because of the role that dogs and cats play in our lives right in um, culture, yeah. you know i think that's a really hard question actually it sort of plays into debates about like the ethics of of eating animals um you know like if we're responding to the intrinsic status of dogs it may be that say pigs also have that same 
intrinsic status, or if our reluctance to eat dogs is a response to the role that dogs play in our communities, then, then maybe the arguments don't transfer over. Okay, one last one. Why the sky is big. Why the sky is big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Um, uh, why First of all, sky- that kid was an idiot. He couldn't <laughs> even, like, form a sentence. I know. Come on, kid. Where's your why verb? Why the sky is big. Duh. We're really embarrassed. Sorry, Scott. I mean, I just no, we no, don't, no. We don't want to make it sound like the the little kids who listen to our podcast are all that dumb. Is what we're trying to say. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, you're, you're giving him too hard a time. That like he's <laughs> describing the answer he'd like. Why the sky is big? That's he doesn't phrase it as a question. He's mm-hmm. just prescribed a description of what he's hoping to know. And um, you know, well, I mean, there's so many different ways you could answer. Right. And part of the part of the fun, I think, of parenting is actually just trying out different ways of answering. So, like, you could play with his smallness. Right. Um, you know, like and, and size being a kind of relative mm-hmm. concept, point out things that like the sky is not big relative to the sun or even relative uh, maybe um, to the earth, relative to the solar system. Uh, so uh, I think it's fun to play around with uh, the ways in which these things are relative um yeah i mean maybe he's also asking for a kind of creation story you know again like part of the joy of of engaging kids about this is is probing to see like what the nature of the inquiry is and what they'll accept as responsive you know uh, earlier you had mentioned gareth matthews the philosopher gareth matthews and he has this whole thing where he's like listening to kids requires that you know we have to be willing to relinquish uh, what he calls the automatic presumption of adults' superiority in knowledge and experience, which, as a parent of four children, I will admit is difficult to do. Right? Like your 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 sort of your your standard response to to a child is that I know more than you do because I'm an adult. I've lived longer. I mean, as much as I hate this answer, I can't tell you how many times I have had to say, because I said so, Um, (laughs) you know, and we all do it. But I wonder, you know, having having written this book and thought about it so much, um, what do you think that we as adults can learn from kids? You know, like how, how can we as adults keep that same childlike wonder and perspective alive? So, you know, Matthews says at one point in one of his books that doing philosophy with kids can create this totally different kind of interaction than you can have with them in almost every other context. If they ask you a question about science, you're in the position of, you know, having superior knowledge. Or if they ask you a question about how to accomplish something in the world, same deal. Or if they're um, like they're they're looking often for permission, like you're in your role as authority, whether it's like authority about what they need to do or authority about what you know. But one point Matthew's made about philosophy is if they're asking a question like, "What happens after you die?" or um, you know, like, "What makes something unfair?" Chances are you don't really know the answer either. Mm-hmm. You may have some thoughts or ideas, but your uncertainty. Right, creates the possibility of a genuinely collaborative conversation. Right. So when I say to my kid, you know, what do you think when he asks whether God exists? I do it in the spirit of like, I genuinely want to know what you think. I don't mm-hmm. actually know the answer to this. So tell me how you're thinking about it. And I'll tell you how I'm thinking about it. 
and we'll have a conversation together. Or if my kid tells me that I'm being unfair or that something in the world is unfair, I may ask them, like, do you think it's my responsibility to fix that? Is it like my job to make everything like between you and your brother turn out fair and then have a genuine conversation? Maybe they'll think the answer is yes and you'll give them some, like, but, but so one answer to your question is, um, engage in these kinds of collaborative conversations, do mm-hmm. philosophy with them. Don't teach them philosophy. So actually like don't go out uh, like that, and read yeah. Plato and tell them <laughs> what you've learned. Just, just engage in the inquiry with them. I think is something that's, um, that is wonderful for the both of you. So, you know, what Reza was really asking is like, how do we keep our minds open? How do we keep our hearts open? How do we keep that beginner's mind fresh? But you're saying, you do this by having a conversation with children? Are there other ways that we can kind of implement uh, what children naturally have in our lives? Yeah, so if you, if you don't have kids around or you want to do it in spaces without kids, I think it's, um, you know, it's partly maybe just like disconnecting from the world a bit and creating space in your life for these conversations, right? So like I am like anybody like scrolling through my phone constantly but, uh, you know, and like my publisher keeps saying, like, oh, because you do more philosophy on Twitter or do philosophy on TikTok. And I think there may be ways to like raise the questions. But I also think like some things in life just like they require some time and some thought and some slowness. So, you know, like a glass of wine and a friend in a quiet space. Um, and, uh, you know, you can probably have a great conversation about some of these things that really, you know, occupied you when you were little. Like, hey, why do you why do you go to church? Do you believe? Um, and, and I think that um, you know we could make space for more of those conversations in our lives um, if we if we wanted to have them. Absolutely, um, elevated conversations on life's biggest questions. It's what I'm all about. Scott Hershevitz. The book is nasty, brutish, and short. Adventures in philosophy with my kids. Are your kids brutish? No. Well, you mean, so uh, I, I, I have like lived a journey with the title of this book. Um, you know, as you know, it's like a quote from Thomas Hobbes, yes. Uh, yes. you know, life of the state of nature has been uh, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And, and of course, when I had kids, I thought, oh, like these characters, they can also be nasty, brutish, and short. Definitely my kids included. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty blessed though. They're, they're cute and kind and uncommonly so. And I asked my little one, Hank, when the like when the book was going to press, I said, "Hey, are you nasty and brutish?" And he said, "I can be nasty, but I'm not British," which I thought was <laughs> I thought was close enough. So nasty, British, character. and short. Well, <laughs> yeah. the book is a delight uh, for parents and kids. Uh, it's a great conversation starter with your family. You can sit around and have an elevated metaphysical milkshake discussion with your children using this book almost as a textbook. There should be a study guide that goes Mm. along with it, by the way. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we're really thrilled to have you and, um, you've really sparked our imaginations. Thank you, professor. Thank you. Fascinating conversation, Scott Hershevitz. That was so great. Love those kids' questions. And, you know, as I'm thinking about it now, I feel like I have a question for you, Rain, which is, why Sky So Big? Reza, why Sky So Big? I'll answer that question. Because science, so big. (laughs) Reza, look at our size in relationship to the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy is only a grain of sand 
of the galaxies that exist in the universe. And I think it's important to know our size and to understand that we fit into a scientific world. We perceive with senses. We've got rods and cones in our eyes to look up at the sky and perceive it. Uh, physiologically, we're having a, a sensation of looking at this big sky. We're using our cognitive faculties to kind of process the, the nature of the size of the universe itself. But we're also having a personal experience, you know, David Chalmers would call it the question of mind, um, which is why are we having all of these feelings and thoughts and memories and insights and uh, uh, kind of a personal filmic cinematic narrative of our lives as we are in the midst of science. And this is uh, the true mystery of being alive. Mm. Counterpoint. Me go boom boom and potty. Okay. All right. Folks, we're going to give away five copies of Scott Hershevitz's uh, amazing book, Nasty Brutish and Short. Uh, you know how this works. All you got to do is write a review for Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts. Email a screenshot of the review to metaphysical at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. And we'll send the first five people to do that a book. But remember, no P.O. Box. Uh, on your address, folks, okay? It's already suspicious enough, you know, that you have a P.O. box, but we can't send a book to a P.O. box. And also, only in the United States. That's the new rule now. So all you Racist. many, many uh, Bulgarian listeners, too bad, no book for you. And if you want more of Life's Big Questions, you can find us on social media at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson and on Twitter at Metamilk Podcast and Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake. Let us know your Life's Big Question. We just might explore them on a future episode. And remember to follow, rate, and review Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Please also think about subscribing to our YouTube channel and you can watch us have interviews and have scintillating conversations every week on the YouTubes you can watch while you're pooping. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. Um, I'm pretty sure Neil deGrasse Tyson has some opinions on women's vaginas, but hey, that Sahel. Um, <laughs> Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.